This episode is sponsored by the McCormick Center for Early Childhood Leadership at National Lewis University in Chicago. The center has this slogan, improving outcomes for children one leader at a time. Go to their webpage to find information about them. Just Google McCormick Center for Early Childhood Leadership at National Lewis University. Welcome to today's podcast in the podcast series, Research in Leadership in Schools, Early Childhood Settings and Social Care Settings. As usual, I have an interview with a researcher in the leadership field to present to you today. I hope that you will gain new insights from listening to this interview. Yeah, so today I am in Chicago downtown on Michigan Avenue, just across the Bean. And I am in National Lewis University. And with me is Leslie Catch. She is an associate professor in early childhood studies. And welcome to the podcast, Leslie. Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, let's firstly talk about how you ended up with coming to early childhood leadership. Sure. So I took a little bit of a roundabout way into my position now where I direct the Early Childhood Administration Master's Program at National Lewis and work with a lot of early childhood directors and leaders from really around the nation because we're an online program. So we get people um, from Florida and Washington and Texas. Um, but where I started was uh, my background's in social work. And I had a master's in social work and child development. And I was working in a clinical setting for uh, an infant mental health program called the Fussy Baby Network out of Erickson Institute, making home visits with families and doing what we called warm lines, was taking phone calls from worried parents about their babies. Um, and I was working with a family who was caring for a foster infant with plans for adoption. And we had the unfortunate tragedy where the baby was killed by the boyfriend of this foster mother who I didn't know about as the home visitor. I was coming to the house for six months every week and I didn't know that there was somebody else living in the house, but the mom, um, the foster mother was afraid to tell me about this person because he had a felony record. And to be a foster parent here, you can't have anybody living in your house that has a felony record. Um, and so we had actually discharged the case and we felt like everything was going fine. And then we got the phone call from DCFS, our Department of Children and Family Services, that the infant had been killed. Um, the baby was not fussy anymore, so this was um, somewhat of a surprise. And so this, what, the reason that I share that story is because it's what launched me it, back into research and into um, infant research and to get my PhD. So I started studying fathers and their perceptions and coping with infant crying. I realized that there was really no research out there specifically looking at this population. And the reason why it was interesting to me was because of this, the, um, the situation I had just gone through, and I started thinking, what could I have done differently? Had, would I have done anything differently had this man been a part of our home visits? Would I have talked to him differently? Would I have asked different questions? What would I have known about previously, because we knew a lot about how mothers, even non-biological mothers, cope with infant crying and ways to give them strategies? 
And I realized I didn't know much about what I would do with a father or a male sitting in my home visits. So that sent me on the path to looking into research. When I didn't find any, I said, well, then I'm going to do it. So I did my research study on 300 fathers, asking them questions about their infants crying and how they coped with it. Um, at the same time, I um, came to National Lewis to take over the infant or the Early Child Administration Master's Program. And since then, it's been about eight years, I've continued my research in infant mental health and infant crying, but I've also blended the two in looking at how childcare programs um, manage and cope and deal with infants who are particularly fussy and cry a lot. Um, looking at how they manage the caregiver stress level, so when do infant teachers need a break. And what's really interesting to, to acknowledge about this situation is that in the United States, uh, most caregivers will take babies starting at six weeks of age, which is very young. Um, and there's something called the peak, the crying curve. So infants, when they're first born, they, so they often don't cry. Most infants don't cry a lot. But then they start to cry more between five and seven weeks, and it's called the crying curve, and we see it across all cultures. Some cry more than others. In cultures where babies are carried more, they don't cry as much, but they still have this peak, right? They still have this curve that we see between five and seven weeks. Well, when you consider the fact that at six weeks, providers are taking babies, they're actually taking them, which could possibly be the peak of that baby's crying. So they're taking an infant into their care who might be really fussy just on the crying curve, or they could be a fussy baby, which is still does the curve, but they cry a lot more than the regular crying curve, run-of-the-mill infant crying. So it sets up a potential for a very dangerous situation, risky, challenging for the caregivers. Um, and parents are often really concerned about putting their baby in childcare because they're already struggling so much themselves that they're concerned about how somebody who's relatively a stranger to them and to the baby is going to cope with their challenging behaviors. So that's where I'm looking right now and where my, um, my next research study is going to be interviewing childcare providers and doing a wider quantitative study to look at how, what policies programs have in place, if they have any, and what um, safeguards they have for the babies and for the caregivers who might get overstressed by the amount of crying and difficult behaviors the infants will exhibit. Did, did they hear you right that you interviewed, uh, or, or you had 300 fathers to, to do the survey? How, how did you choose these fathers? So I did an open call using social media, using different networks that would send this call for um, fathers to participate. It was any fathers from um, birth to one, if they had a baby under one year of age and they were over 18 years of age. So it was really kind of the snowball effect of passing it on and I had incentives for the fathers if they participated. Fathers are very difficult to get to engage in research and what we've learned, I've learned this myself in talking with other people, is that unless it specifically says research is about fathers, if you're doing infant research, they assume it's for mothers. And so you have to really target fathers and ask them to participate. Because when you look at the majority of research on infants, when you read the participant descriptions, it's responded to by mothers. So mothers are often giving the information about the babies, whatever the research study is about. And I think partly it's because it's just hard to engage the fathers, but I found specifically asking for them, they really wanted to talk about it. They wanted to engage. I did a smaller portion of qualitative study with um, 10, only 10 fathers out of that group of 300 where I asked if they would be willing. The last question was, would you be willing? I got less people being interested in doing that, but I was able to get 10 fathers to do more lengthy qualitative interviews with. 
And, and, and these are not kind of specific uh, fathers from disadvantages family. This is kind of just father in the broad sense. It was fathers in the broad sense, and then, but that there was a major limitation to my study is that it still attracted a more majority white, relatively well-educated population. So that is a big disadvantage. It was it was diverse in that I think I had about. 30% of minority, but that's still not good enough considering our demographics in the United States. So that's something I would like to explore more specifically is looking at different cultures and different socioeconomic statuses. And because we know that it does affect child rearing and that actually in some families that are maybe less resourced, the fathers play a bigger role because there's more division of um, family labor and that both fam parents are working and equally have to pitch in to help care for the for the infants and for young children. Yeah, and then I have the million dollar question. Uh, that was that you said that all children across all cultures will start to cry at the age of six weeks. What's the reason for this crying? Is it kind of because they are growing in their physical body? Is it kind of more environmental? Uh, psychological uh, factors or yeah I guess probably it's a blend of everything but but can you say something about wh why do researchers think that children start to cry at the age of six mm -hmm. well that is the million dollar question and that's a lot of why there is so much research actually on infant crying and trying to understand why it is that what there's there's something I do want to clarify that all babies cry right and most of them cry um, on average an hour a day total, sometimes two. When we what we call fussy babies or colicky babies can cry up to three hours a day. And so while all babies cry on this curve that peaks between five and seven weeks, there's some babies that cry a lot more than that from the beginning and still even cry more during that curve. And so those babies are the ones that are at the heart of a lot of the research is trying to understand what colic is, why do some babies cry more than others. And I have to say there is no answer to that question or else we would stop all the research. So there's um, a, some strands of research that have identified some kind of gut internal discomfort that some of these infants might be struggling with and um, some acid reflux type things. But a lot of times you can rule all that out and it's just crying and we don't really know what causes it and why they're crying. And so where the research has turned is to trying to help parents cope with what we call unexplained crying, where there's no cure for it. There have been many research studies looking at giving babies probiotics. That's the recent trend, is that giving them um, a probiotic can reduce some of the crying, and they're starting to mix it into some formulas, giving it in over-the-counter drops. But the most successful treatment is working with parents around coping and soothing strategies. So while the baby's still going to cry, we have methods that can help them cry a little less and make it a little bit easier on the parents. But we, we do not have an answer to why some babies cry more than others. But we know that babies cry because it's their form of communication. So the real basic answer is that babies have to cry to tell us that they need things. And an average baby will cry when they're hungry, you feed it and it stops crying. It'll cry when its diaper's wet, you change it and it gets better. So there's usually a reason. Then you have about 20% of infants, one in five, who cry for no unexplained reason. And so you feed them, you change them, bounce them around, and they continue to cry. And, and, and when can you realize that kind of my child is following the normal curves where it will go up and then it will go down again? And when should we kind of be alert yeah. that something else is going on here? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. 
Um, there was a study done looking at emergency room visits, and they were trying to, uh, they were m making patterns or noting when parents came into the emergency room for what they called unexplained crying for my baby's crying. And those babies that usually show up in the emergency room, either there's something wrong, it could be there's all these, you know, they call it like a tourniquet or a sty in the eye. There's these checklists that the doctor will go through that sometimes you can miss in a baby. Um, but then still about 20% of those infants come in and there's, there's really nothing wrong with the, medically wrong with the baby. So the advice to parents, and this is actually the heart of my research, is how parents perceive the crying, whether crying is a problem for them or not, is that if it feels most parents know when something feels really wrong. If it feels like your stress level is going so high because of the crying, is that's when you need to go talk to somebody. Because if you feel like you can't cope with this crying. Physical attributes of a colicky baby are that when they cry really hard, their face turns almost purple. We have a, um, a what's, what do we call it, a, a platform here called Purple Crying that tries to talk to parents about it, and they call it purple crying because the face turns purple. Their stomachs can become hard, so when you touch their stomach, it's hard. And these are very concerning um, attributes of colic crying, but if you take them to the doctor, the doctor's most likely gonna say they have colic, which doesn't do much for you other than give you a name for what you're seeing. Um, but really, our best advice to parents is if you're feeling your stress level go up, the best advice is to put the baby down, even though that feels counter. Put the baby down until your own stress level reduces and that you maybe wash your face, go in the other room. The baby's in a safe place, in a safe crib. It's okay to let the baby cry for a little bit until you feel like you can manage, take a break, come back and try whatever soothing technique is gonna work for that day. Because for these babies, it might work that day and it doesn't work the next day, so. And is it dependent on the uh, physical environment? So could, could they maybe cry a lot in the early childhood center and not at home or kind of when they're out um, strolling down the street with their moms or? And the situational is definitely just like any, I think for any person, you sort of know where you feel more comfortable. And so for some babies, a lot of stimulation can cause crying. So the child care center is a perfect example of that because you can't make all the other babies quiet and you can't make the kids in the next room simmer down. You know, it's, it's loud. Sometimes the lights are really bright. There's no way to dim it. That can certainly exacerbate crying where you might have a baby who's colicky that will cry less in some situations than others. The key is trying to figure out the formula to that. What's the, what's the best situation for this baby? Sometimes distraction for some babies helps, right? So being in a busy environment allows them to focus on other things outside of them internally and what they're, what they're feeling inside. Um, but yeah, there's certainly some situations where I think babies cry less and more in others, depending on every baby's different, right? Some mm -hmm. have a higher tolerance for that than others do. Yeah, let us then move on and we will talk firstly about uh, what can early childhood directors do actually when we have fussy uh, crying in the childcare. Uh, and then after that, let's then talk about how can we support the parents and maybe in particular the fathers. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but if we first talk about, so when we have a child in a, a Childcare, which which actually does a lot of crying. I think you call it. Uh, they are a fussy crying children. Fussy baby. Here. Fussy Colicky baby. baby uh -huh. Colicky baby. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What what kind of will uh, the director needs to put in place for the organization and for the uh, staff to do in those situations? 
I think the number one thing for any childcare provider, whether it's a home care setting or a group care, is to really be open and communicative with the parents because the parents, assuming, let's say the baby is six weeks, they've spent six weeks with this infant and they certainly have a lot of knowledge. They're the expert on this baby. So is to first sit down with the parents and hopefully the parents are open and honest about telling the provider that this baby seems to cry more than other. Sometimes they might not know if it's their first baby that this baby cries more than the average baby, but is to talk about what soothing strategies work for this baby. So first try to figure out what is this baby like, right? Do they like to be swaddled? That's an issue for some childcare programs because they don't always allow blankets. But I have worked with some programs who are allowed to get a signed waiver to use one of the safe swaddles that have the Velcro on it. Swaddling can be extremely helpful for all babies, but particularly for colicky babies. And so talk through what some of those things like swaddling work for the for the baby. White noise maybe is one that works a lot for colicky babies, um, reduced stimulation. So creating that partnership with the parents, documenting the things that have worked. The parents might say it works one day and doesn't work the next, but that's okay. You want to get all those tools in your toolbox to think about before you have this baby in your care. Once the baby's there and it's exhibiting a lot of crying, it's really important, at least for the director's position, is to think about more frequent breaks. Now, consistency in caregiving is important for all babies, but for a baby that's really challenging, it's going to stress the provider out more than the average baby, is making sure that there's scheduled breaks, maybe even more than the standard breaks for that main caregiver for that infant, and have a contingency plan for maybe that day or that afternoon the baby's extremely fussy is to allow the provider to have kind of that cord to pull to say that's it I need a break and for that to be okay to not be admonished to not um, make the provider feel like they're failing is to say we recognize this is a challenging baby you go get a breather I'll hold him while you go take a break come back when you feel like you can because the worst case scenario is to have a stressed out provider who's trying to care for a really fussy baby and has two more crawling on her leg and they come to that breaking point and maybe they do something or say things that they wish they hadn't but it's that stress level crying can induce such a high level of stress in caregivers all caregivers parents and that and and then you say that uh, you need to be able to take more breaks or, or, or is there like a typical interval where you can say uh, a carer shall be with the child for i don't know 30 minutes and then have a break or 20 minutes or That's a good question. I don't have a specific answer to that one because I think it really depends on the caregiver's tolerance. So it might be whether if this caregiver seems to get more stressed out by the crying than maybe another one, you want to put in place a plan that's makes sense for that caregiver. I think there could be a good morning, right? And the baby seems to do fine. Generally, you might want to think about more breaks in the afternoon because towards the end of the day is when all babies start to get more fussy. So it would be making those breaks more frequent towards the second half of the day after maybe that last nap time before they go home. Most babies become more fussy around what we call happy hour time here. And so we, we think about that in the infant crying world is why do babies, they call it the witching hour too. I don't know if you heard that. A lot of babies cry around dinner time, which is the least convenient. Here, we, we also feel stressed around that time. It's been a long day, so some people pour themselves a drink. Babies cry. They got to get it out. That's the way they deal with the day's frustration. So focusing on those later parts of the days where they can um, allow the providers to step out for you know 10 minutes at a time. But I really think it's personal to that caregiver's preferences and how much they're able to tolerate. So being able to sit down and have that conversation. And then to a question, which could be different maybe coming from the Nordic countries, Faroe Island, Denmark, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and then to the States. But I'm thinking that if you have uh, 
one child, if we think about a um, child care center. So if you have one child in one room, uh, which is demanding for the staff, is, is there a possibility to get some extra funding? Because, because doing a schedule with kind of very tight uh, covering of this one child, it, it will maybe stress the whole uh, group of the staff. Yeah, I I agree this could be different com- coming from different funding streams and how you're able to do that. I think that is the biggest challenge that caregiving centers have, especially when they're faced with not just crying infants, but any challenging child, right? A three-year-old is almost more <laughs> concerning than a crying baby because that three-year-old could start to harm other children if they're not um, watched closely or monitored a lot. So I think it it runs across the gamut of of age ranges if you're dealing with a very challenging child at any age. Um, I haven't, now here in the United States, not so much for infants, but you can put in a request to have an an additional aid for an extremely challenging child who maybe has a specific diagnosis where they need to have an additional caregiver to help. But that's a good question. I haven't thought about this for someone who's diagnosed as colicky or considered a fussy baby, whether they can make the same argument they should be able to. But I do think this is where the director's piece comes in a lot because it's usually the directors, as we know, they wear a million hats, right? They're Sometimes they're making applesauce and other times they're doing paperwork and sometimes they're sitting on the floor with the kids, is it can fall a lot on the director to give those breaks if they don't have another teacher. So that's a maybe you know an unfortunate side of of what happens in the director position but if you don't have the teachers around this is where the director really has to step in and then come up with a plan of it's not going to be sustainable the good news that i want to mention is that most crying subsides by three months so sometimes four months depending on when that peak of crying happened but it's important to know there's a light at the end of the tunnel so this isn't something that you have to have in place if it is luck hopefully if you only have one child that's that's struggling with a lot of crying is that you know by about three months of age, it's gonna get better. And so you don't have to have that extra person or these rotating breaks as frequently forever. It's just help this child get through this difficult time in the infancy period. I'm I'm just uh, kind of getting in mind uh, a bit of a funny story, I think. Uh, From Denmark, one of my friends, she's a police officer. And she told me that they were on a patrol during the night and then at, half past three they met um, a set of parents and there was the child in their back seat and she thought okay this is something kind of strange yeah yeah yeah. three in the morning yeah we need to maybe contact the social services or stuff like that and then they stopped this car and then the parents uh, they told the police no no actually our child is crying so much and the only way for us to calm down our child is to go out and drive and in order for us not to fall asleep, both of us need to go to the car, then we can chat to one another while the child is sleeping. Yes, yes. that is something we've heard often, and, and I think be sensitive to those parents you see at three in the morning. Also raises some concern, I could see why, but I, you hear that a lot, that the car is the only thing that will calm the baby down. And my sister, my parents report my older sister was fussy, and my dad said he would drive to Cleveland and back you know, multiple times just to get her to sleep and whether she wasn't sleeping it was just having her calm down so it's not unusual to use it in the car as the tool to calm the baby not practical but <laughs> it does help it does work are you aware of any I, i'm thinking we have a lot of development in in all uh, welfare areas uh, 
we have machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, robots. Are there any kind of innovations coming up now where you have something simulating maybe a car drive? Yeah, the, yes, there is a whole industry around this kind of thing. Um, you know, a lot of more recently, some of the rockers and things will vibrate. So there's a button you can press that will make it. So that's trying to stimulate the, the vibration of that. There was a new product recently um, developed by Harvey Karp, who wrote The Happiest Baby on the Block, and he talked a lot. He has like five soothing techniques. And he um, developed, it's called the Snoo, S-N-O-O, about $1,500 for a little bassinet that um, vibrates. It has white noise built in, and when the baby moves, it moves in reaction to the baby's movement. So it's responding in time to the baby and kind of reading the baby's cues. I don't, I haven't heard the results, I'm not sure, I think he did research in making it, but I, I haven't really talked to parents, it's very expensive, first of all, so I haven't really met anybody who's been able to afford it or felt like they needed it, but those types of things are coming out to try to help solve this difficult period of time, so. We are actually running out of time soon, and I think this is very interesting, but I have one question regarding this kind of environment in the Early Childhood Center. And then I also want to move on to hear what can we do to support the parents. But, but uh, firstly, let me take, so if we have a foster crying child in a room, is there anything we shall do towards the other children? Shall we maybe isolate this child for a while or shall we, of course, they are only three months, so we can't explain so much. Yeah. But but shall we do something in order to I don't know protect or to get the whole environment of the children to to do something else? That's a good question. If if you have, and I know every setting has different groupings of age. So if you have all babies, this is harder to do. If you have maybe you know infants up to three years of age, that that that's common in some settings is that you can explain to the older children if you know if they're able to hear it that the baby's crying they're not in pain they're not hurt but that for this baby it's what this baby does to tell us that they're not they're a little angry or it's just any type of communication this is how this baby's doing it um, but I think for a room full of infants, crying is stressful for grown-ups. It's also stressful for kids, right? Hearing crying that won't stop elicits um, internal reactions for babies, too. And so if it is possible, if the baby's really having a fit, which for colicky babies and for parents who've had this, you know what it is, is that you can feel it revving up and they get into this period of crying that's probably not going to calm down very quickly, is if you can remove the child and... and um, if you can wear the baby, like in a sling or any kind of like baby carrier, it allows the caregiver to move around more easily and, and is a good soothing strategy. But I think when you start to get to know this baby and you see they're coming up, starting to work themselves up into this really um, high-pitched crying that lasts for a while, is if you can remove them from the setting that's ideal safely to in order to not stress the other infants out, um, if possible. But that's asking a lot <laughs> for providers. And then you said that the most important thing for the staff is to um, is to establish a collaboration with the parents and and to have quite frequent communication. Uh, how much shall the, the the director be involved in this, or or shall he hand it over to one sp specific staff member, or what do you think about that? I guess it depends on the center and how involved the director is with each 
classroom and if they have a lead teacher who t takes that leadership position and is is comfortable in their interactions with parents I think ideally it's the person who is working most closely with the baby so who can kind of be that main partner with the parents to really talk about how the day each day was for the baby and share their own soothing strategies well we found this we you know we realized the baby really likes this position or I was bouncing on the ball with the baby or I put them in the carrier is really to share that information with the parents so I think that's a personal um, you know situational decision between the set the the center of who's going to take the lead in forging that you know real close communication with the parents <laughs> utility truck I think going by there yeah and then my last question is that uh, this parent involvement is really crucial you say and then we have the fathers so how should uh, the staff in the childhood center or a caregiver how should they maybe specifically support the fathers yeah well i think generally for supporting both parents is to validate what's happening and we've heard this from many parents who've been caring for a fussy baby is that not just patting them on the back and saying it will get, get better is saying this is really hard this is really hard for you I can tell it's hard for us too but we're going to get through this together oftentimes parents feel like no one believes them right they'll say my baby cries so much and people look at the baby and say it looks fine to me but they don't know what's happened over the last 12 hours is to allow them to talk too and say how was last night let them talk about it and, and show some empathy towards what they've been through and to validate their their stress level. And they also, if it's child care program, they're getting a little bit of a break from the baby, right? Which can be a say, you take this time to you know go to work, do your thing. We're going to manage it. You come back and you'll be recharged and ready to take on the night, which is often the harder time for some babies. Um, and then specifically for fathers is also, I think what happens in many settings, at least here, is that Fathers aren't assumed that they know much of what's going on. They're not asked many questions. Um, their perspective and, and um, advice on things isn't taken seriously, is to recognize that fathers really are contributing to the care of this baby, and they often know more than you think they do. The fathers in my study were able to report how much the baby was crying, very similarly to bigger, wide community studies that has asked for mothers' reports, is that it was the same levels, and that made told us fathers are are reliable reporters. They actually know what's happening with their infants, and we need to respect that. And also recognizing that they're also stressed by their babies crying, and so similarly is to validate their concerns, but validate their stress level, recognize that this is hard on them, and really most importantly for fathers, depending on your role, is talking about soothing strategies to make sure that fathers have that so that they feel like they're somewhat competent, that there's something they can find that helps the baby calm down so they feel useful right especially for breastfeeding babies this can be really hard for fathers but it's finding something that they feel like they're good at so whether that's the bouncing on the ball or walking the baby around is helping them to realize what it is that they're doing that actually soothes the baby and sometimes pointing it out for them look at how she looks at you when you pick her up you know dads aren't always used to seeing that is to have the somebody voice and 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 describe what they're seeing is this connection between the baby which sometimes when they're really young the father doesn't feel like i'm connected at all to this baby they need someone else to point it out and to show the baby responding to their talking and those sorts of things it can be very helpful thank you very much uh, leslie it has been really interesting i think good well thank you so much for allowing me to talk about this topic and hopefully it's helpful for somebody dealing with this situation <laughs> Thank you.
We have come to the end of this podcast. I hope you have enjoyed the interview with a researcher in the area of schools, early childhood settings, and social care settings. We have a group on Facebook. You are welcome to join us there. You can have news about podcasts and we can discuss issues being brought up in the interviews. Just go on Facebook and in the search field, search research in leadership in schools, early childhood settings and social care settings. Well, the last thing for me is just to wish you a marvelous day. Bye bye.